okay, we could do better, I think. Uh, verse 28 together, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign. For he has been... For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's just the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's pray together. Oh God, uh, I'm just humble that we could not just hear your word, but be able to read it. And God, we praise you for the Holy Spirit, God, that you have given uh, in our lives to dwell in us that we may understand your word. God, you are so gracious and loving and and merciful and, and gracious. And God, today may you open our hearts, may you open our eyes, may you open our soul, God, to hear the truth from your word from the mouth of the Apostle Paul. So Lord God, be with us this morning. May we all glory and honor only come to your name, in Jesus' name, amen. Seated, our title of the message this morning is, What Are You Living For? A uh, young man came to W.A. Gladstone when he was Prime Minister of England and said, Mr. Gladstone, I would appreciate if you give me a few minutes to share with you my plans for the future. The young man said, I would like to study law. Gladstone said that, said, what then? Then, sir, I would like to gain entrance to the Bar of England. Yes, young man, and what then? Then, sir, I hope to have a place in Parliament in the House of Lords. Yes, young man, what then? Then I hope to do great things for Britain. And the young man, yes, young man, and what then? And I hope to retire to take life easy. Yes, young man, what then? Well, Mr. Gladstone, I suppose I will die. And yes, young man, and what then? The young man hesitated and then said, I never thought any further than that, sir. And looking at the young man sternly, Gladstone said, young man, you are a fool. Go home and think life through. My question for you this morning is, what are you living for? Your answer to that question will determine the direction of your life. If your purpose is wrong, your direction will be wrong. If your purpose is vague or fuzzy, your direction will be fuzzy. If you don't know your purpose, you'll just be swept away along by the currents of our age, doing what seems to bring you happiness. So it's so crucial for us that we be clear and, and correct in answering the question, what are you living for? As the story of the young man, Mr. Gladstone illustrates the correct answer to that question. Must include some thoughts about the fact that death and what lies beyond is something that we all have to answer. It must also include the uncertainty of life so that whatever, whenever death comes, it doesn't frustrate our purpose. In our study last week from verses 12 to 18, we learned from Paul, example, the principle of how to overcome circumstances. People who are being overcome by their circumstances focus on their circumstances. People who are overcoming their circumstances focus on what God is accomplishing amid that circumstances. And through Paul, although he was in prison, there were other Christians who were purposely seeking to cause him additional pain, yet his focus was not what was on what God was doing. Christ was becoming even well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else while he was in prison. 
And then all he really cares about is that the gospel will be proclaimed and other believers were also encouraged to speak the word of God without fear. So all these things were happening while he was in prison. And that causes Paul to really rejoice so that he had little concern about the motivation of others or whether people were insulting him or maligning him. So as long as the gospel of Jesus was being proclaimed. And now as we pick up from verse 19, this is an epistle of joy. And Paul starts off, yes, and I will rejoice. Paul's confidence, his rejoicing in his heart, the joy in his heart is based upon his confidence in the plan of God. That's the first thing that we want to see here is Paul's confidence in the plan of God. The first thing Paul tells us is that he is relying on the plan of God. He said he uses Greek word oida, means to know something with certainty. He was so convinced that God will work out the details of his release. And because of his love for God and his calling to the ministry, he knew the principle for I know. He really knew, meaning he was absolutely confident that this will turn out to be for his release. Either a release from this world and a welcoming in heaven. And he knew the principle for I know. He was absolutely confident that this all this trouble that he's going through, all this imprisonment, all this pain, all this beating, shall future turn out for my deliverance. I don't know about you, but I believe so much in what Romans 8.28 tells me. Would you read this with me? And we know all things work together for good. All right, we'll, we'll do this again. I know we're a little bit slow this morning. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for what? Good. It will work together for what? Good. It didn't say in this verse that some things will work out together for good. It says that all things will work together for good. Amen? <laughs> Isn't that awesome? That I know that all things will work together for good. Uh, in Genesis 50 verse 20, if you have your Bibles there, it says, uh, God might have meant it for evil, but God will mean it for what? Good, right? That's all God has been saying to all believers. And to Paul here, his confidence that he will be delivered from this because it will work out. See, one thing I know as a believer in Christ is all things will work out. Um, this morning I was uh, walking around 6.45 and um, started getting anxious about uh, Tuesday. Tuesday is uh, round three of, uh, round three is Tuesday for me. So be in prayer for me. Uh, and I was getting anxious, and, and God was reminding me that he'll work this, this out. And he had to remind me over and over that he will work this chemo thing out. He has to. Not because he owes it to me, because <laughs> I just know that he will work it out. And it's just this confidence that I knew that he will work it out. Uh, he didn't promise me that it would be painless. He didn't promise me that it will feel good. He, but he promised me that it will work out. And that's the confidence we should have in Christ. That all things will work together for good. And it will be for my deliverance. It's for your deliverance. And this deliverance is, is, comes from the Greek word satoria where we get the word salvation. And Paul was talking about his release from sin and, and death from faith in Jesus. He was confident of his eternal security that whatever happens to him, he was fine. Here he quotes Job who suffered even though he was innocent. Though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. 
this will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. And again, he thinks of Job when he, when he said in 1925 to 26, for I know that my Redeemer lives. And at least, at last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God. That's the confidence that, that Paul had. That's the confidence that Job had. That's the confidence that Peter had, that God will not leave us here. That God said, I will see God. Isn't that, isn't that awesome that no matter what happens in life, that you and I will see God at the end of it? Right? And, and he goes on to say, whether by life or by death, in verse 20. Some commentators believe that Paul was referring to being released from prison or from execution. But the former seems to, to like the, uh, it seems that the former seems the valid interpretation. So in verse 20, he qualifies his expectation with the words, whether by life or by death. He will be even delivered from them. In any case, he knew that his present situation was only temporary. It is only going to last. You know, I know that. And yet, I'm still full of fear. I I know that this thing that is happening to me is temporary. I know it's not going to last. But it's still so scary. Um. So the only thing I really have to go with is that God, whether by left or, or by death, I know that this is temporary. And what Paul is really saying here, maybe I'll be proven innocent maybe at my trial. Maybe I will be released from prison. Maybe I will go to heaven to be with Jesus Christ, therefore be delivered from this world. All he knows is that he will be delivered out of this, whether by life or by death. And that's the only thing I know. Well, do I know that this chemotherapy will work? I don't know. Nobody knows. Right? But I do know that, that my God will deliver me one way or the other. And that's the confidence that we and I should have, is that God will deliver us whether we are in this life, and definitely he will deliver us in the next life. And that's the confidence that we should have, because all that he knows is that he will be delivered out of whether by life or by death. So we can rejoice in the face of death as well, confident that if we face death because of righteousness, because suffering for Christ, that we could actually count death as joy, that we could count it all joy. We can actually rejoice because God delivered us. He may deliver us temporarily. He may deliver us eternally. But he will deliver us. That's his promise to us who believe. Amen? And, and not only was Paul confident in, 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 in the plan of God. Letter B, he is confident in the prayers of the Christians. Second, he said, through your prayers, what an amazing statement. You see, Paul knew that God's will will be fulfilled because he is sovereign. But he also knew that God, through the prayers of the saints, that his will will be fulfilled. So he says, through your prayers. Here, we see his appreciation for the prayers from the church that met at Lydia's house. And Paul knew what James was talking about in James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins one to another. And what? Pray for each other. Right? It says there that you may be healed. And I want you to get this. The prayer of a righteous person has what? It has great power. See that with me? Great power. So what's included in prayer is what? Not just it's powerful, but it's great. Right? That's what he's saying here. And I love what he's saying. And it's working. And he has wonderful results. In Romans 15, verse 30, he asked the Christians in Rome, Dear brothers and sisters, I urge you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Do this because of your love for me given to you by the Holy Spirit. Paul is 
telling the believers in Rome to please pray for me. In Ephesians 6, as he concludes the passage on the armor of God, he says, pray in the spirit at all times. And on every occasion, stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. And, and pray for me to ask God to give me the right words so I can boldly explain God's mysterious plan that the good news is for the Jews and the Gentiles alike. You believe that God worked his purposes through the prayers of the saints. And I, and I believe that so heartily. In, Re- in Revelation 15, 8, uh, 5, 8, John tells us that the golden bowls are full of incense in, in, the, in heaven are consists of the prayers of the saints. Ravenhill, Leonard Ravenhill said this. The church has many organizers, but few agonizers. Many who pay, but few who praise. Uh, One of my fond memories uh, going to London uh, was going to uh, the 19th century uh, preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon's church uh, in the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And one of our guides said, hey, what a wonderful sanctuary it was. And I saw his pulpit went up there, and, and, but he said, this is not the most important room in this whole entire tabernacle. So he said, hey, come down with me, come down with me. So we came down to the broiler room. I remember coming down to the broiler room, and, and he says, this is where the power lies. This is where the power of this church lies. This is why people came to hear the gospel. Because people here during the time where Spurgeon was preaching, that people were gathered there praying that people would get saved. They're to a point that they have to actually issue tickets to people so that they can go to church because they couldn't hold it. And so there's so much power in prayer. And when people were uh, visiting me at the hospital, the common sound that I was hearing was, we pray for you, we pray for you, and we pray for you. I tricked one person and says, you know, we'll pray for you. And I said, hey, you can pray for me right now? Because you might forget, right? So, so I found such great joy in that because I rejoice in the prayer of the saints because I knew that they shall turn out to be the source of, of God's working out his plan for my healing. And I'm so thankful for all of you that in those days at the hospital I, that I experienced the prayers of the saints. Uh, this week I, I sat down in my office for praying and I, for a sermon and I paused for a moment when I was studying and um, and in this part of the passage, and I reread the cards that you sent me, and it's just dominated by the words, we're praying for you, and we're praying for you, and we're praying for you. And that's not something I take lightly every week, that I know that many of you will pray for me, especially this week. Um, you know, it's so encouraging that um, when uh, the chemo is being you know, infused in me, that, that I get a text, hey, I'm praying for you today, Right? And, and I love it because, you know, it's encouraging that I'm not alone at this. It's so encouraging that your prayers is actually God is working this out somehow. And, and that's not something I take lightly. That's something that I had profound impact on my joy. Uh, I received some um, good news, bad news this week a little bit. Um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, my primary doctor said, hey, uh, I just want to tell you something that um, – they made a mistake in your first surgery, and um, it should have never happened. And in the back of my hand, I knew that that was happening. And um, what do you do, right? 
I said, do you want me to sue them or what? What do you want me to do? Now I said, no, there's no reasons for that because I believe in my heart that when after first surgery I was really doing well and uh, but God hasn't taught me the lesson that he wanted me to learn. And the second surgery had to happen as painful as it was. God taught me more on those times where in the, uh, recovering from the second surgery than he would have never. I would have never known him. I, w- I would never learn how to pray. I would never learn how to listen. I would have never l- learned the joy of being in pain and, and remaining joyful. I would have never learned any of that if that never happened. So did I like what happened to me? Absolutely not. But did I enjoy it? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, the morphine it really helped. <laughs> but, but, but I tell you, but there was so much there that I could never exchange. That if you ask me, would you do it again? I'll pause, but I'll say, yes, I'll do it again. Because I've never experienced God so much. I never knew what it meant when he said, my mercy is new every morning. I never knew what that meant if that didn't happen. And your prayers counted so much. I never realized the power of prayer until I was there. So I want to say thank you for praying for me. Uh, Tuesday to Friday, please pray hard. Because I know that God is greater than this chemo. I absolutely know it. Not only that, he... Was confidence in, in, in God, but he, not only in the prayer of the saints, but also in the provision of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 19 with me. And in the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Next, Paul was confident in the provision of the Holy Spirit. The word provision, by the way, is epoxkogia, means to help, supply. It can be translated bountiful supply or full of supply, uh, supply and resources. He knew that the Spirit would grant him whatever is necessary to sustain him. He knew that inside of him is the, is the what? The indwelling teacher, the interceder, the guide, and the source of power. And he will provide whatever Paul needs for his deliverance. And this is simply amazing that in his disposal and in our disposal is the power of the Spirit of God. Can you imagine? Will you say with me, I am powerful? The reason why you're powerful is because the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, lives inside of you. And that power is what rises Jesus Christ from the grave. That's what makes you powerful. So don't be a weak sauce. Don't act like weak people because you are not weak people. You are strong because you are powerful in him. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus said you'll receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. If you need power, he'll bring you the power. In John 14, Christ promised that he will send you the helper, the comforter, and he'll give you everything that you need. He'll bring all the resources of heaven to you. Just imagine that for a moment. That you and I, what we have as Christians, is the resources from heaven. All the resources of heaven is available for you. Say amen with me. Is that great? I'm just going to say that again. Maybe you didn't hear me. All the resources of heaven is at your disposal. Amen. Right? Isn't that great? Can you imagine? And he'll bring you all the resources of God. In Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is listed love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, and meekness, self-control. And whatever you need, 
to be loving and joyful and peaceful and gentle and good and faithful and meek and self-control. Whatever that will be, he will bring it to you. The third person of the Trinity is the provider who brings the provision of every Christian um, that possesses the Holy Spirit. And, and every Christian then has that provision. Paul knew that what Zechariah said in, in Zechariah 4, 6, not by my might nor by my power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. These things are three things that will always work together. The word of God, prayer, and the spirit of God. That will always work. See, most people don't believe gets defeated a lot in the Christian life, and they allow them you allow themselves to be defeated. But it's so impossible for me that no matter what circumstance or situation you're in, you can't be defeated. And, and the reason why you can't be defeated is because in Romans chapter eight it tells you that the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. Just think about this for a moment. The third person in the Trinity lives inside of me. Can you go over a lot of circumstances and situations because of that? Absolutely. Because you are that powerful. Letter D. He also was confident in the promises of Christ. Look at verse 20. As is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. See, lastly, he was confident in the promises of Christ, not in his wishful thinking. He said, it's my earnest expectation, which is a very graphic word in the Greek, meaning to stretch your head, straining with the neck as far as you can. And then he adds the word hope, and he will never be put to shame, not before the courts of Caesar, not before God, because Christ will be exalted in his body. So no wonder he had no fear of being disappointed by Christ because he trusted in his promises that Christ will never fail him, that Christ will never forsake him, that Christ will never leave him, that Christ will never abandon him, that Christ will never let him go. That's the promise that you and I have. And that's why he was so confident. He knew the promises of Christ to be with him, to strengthen him, to empower him, to serve him. And that's his promise to me and to all of us and that's why he's so confident facing death i'll never be ashamed i'll never put to shame in other words paul was confident in the promise of christ that if he is faithful that he will be exalted that if i never ashamed of him he'll never be ashamed of me jesus said in mark chapter 8 that whoever wants to follow me must deny himself Verse 38, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father. But if you're ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father. So I'll be as bold as I need to be. I don't care about death. I'll never be ashamed. The Lord will never shame me. He'll always uphold my case and my name. Paul has joy in spite of death because he knows Christ will be glorified. Because he knows the provision of the Spirit is there because he knows the prayers of the saints are there and because he knows the word of God has promised to him that God will deliver him. And that's why I live, he says, no matter what the circumstances are, Christ will always be forever exalted and glorified in my body. What a tremendous commitment. And let me ask you, is that your commitment? That Christ will be honored in your body? I just want to ask you, is that your commitment? Because I'll tell you also this. If that is not your commitment, it's not good enough. Because that's the only commitment that Christ requires of you. 
is full commitment that whether life or death, that Christ will be honored and glorified in this body. That's why we exist. We exist for no other reason but by the glory of God. Here's his conflict. Point number two. Paul continues to open his heart to the saints by allowing them to hear how he's processing his situation. It's it's really a win-win situation for him. But he's still in conflict about it. Because in verse 21, this is my my life verse, uh, for for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. See, up to this point, Paul was not certain what God's plan was for him, whether he would continue to serve God in this life or in the next. To him, either way, he's good. And I love how the Greek rendered this verse. It literally reads, to live Christ, to die gain. It contains no verbs at all. And he knew the living is Christ, but he also knew that dying would be gain. Because then he would be in God's presence. Able to worship him and serve him in, in holy perfection. And sadly, only few people can say that with Paul, that to die is gain is far better. Would you here say this? Would you be able to say, for me to live is Christ? That you're living here at this moment for Christ? And that if you are to die, it's for Christ. Are you able to say that? Paul was. But the world has a way of blinding us. Worldliness. The dictionary defines worldly uh, as relating to or devoted to the temporal world. Worldliness then is a condition of being concerned with worldly affairs, expect, especially to, to the neglect of spiritual things. And here's... I'll be honest with you. Let me just ask you this. Do you sometimes get preoccupied with this world? Do you sometimes get just preoccupied with this world? Do you sometimes forget that there's something better than this? And sometimes do you think that this is the best I can do? That whatever's around me is the best I can do? You know, monthly comes your mortgage. Oh, man, that's the best I can do. No one will say that, right? This is not the best that we can do. There's so much far better. In 1 John chapter 2, here's a forewarning for us. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world, that if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And John wanted us to show his readers that to, to attempt to love both God and the world would be as impossible as trying to combine light and darkness. So these words do not mean that we, our believers, remove ourselves from all contact with the sinful world. That would virtually be impossible, nor are they stoically refrain from anything fun. But when worldly pleasure, especially this, agrees with God's word, then Christians are turned away from the world in order to obey God. Francis Chan said, lukewarm people think about life on earth much more often than eternity in heaven. That's what lukewarm people do. They think about this life on earth and only the life in this life. I will tell you, life in this world is really not that much fun. Is it? Let's just, 20 days of the month, where do you go? You go to work, don't you? You go to work so that on the 10 days, You will buy things so you can work 20 days to pay for those things that you bought. You understand what your life is? 
right? And you do it over and over and over again, right? I work 20 days so I could spend for 10 days. And I just keep rolling it and rolling it and rolling it. And then we call that what? Life, right? It's not life, right? When you send your checks out for your bills, that's not life. That's not life. That's chores, right? And, and Paul, so what, what Paul's saying here is this in his verse is that, that for me, he said for me, so I'm going to ask you for you, meaning Paul was resolved that, that he would live for Christ. You see, everyone must fill this blank personally. You're not exempt. No one is exempt. Would you complete the sentence in verse 21? For me, living is what? You need to complete that sentence in your head. For me, living is what? If you say, I live for sexual pleasures, then you would conclude dying is having no more pleasures. What about power? The second blank would be, dying is being powerless. What about saying living is for beauty? What must conclude that dying is losing all the beauty? If you live for entertainment, then you, your gravestone would read, dying is having no more. So let me ask you, in our short lives, what would you live for? What will you die for? You don't want to live merely for money, sex, power, beauty, and entertainment. Not enough. Instead, spend your life on something that not only matters, but now, but will also matter in eternity. So if we say living is Christ, then we can joyfully say dying is much, much, much gain. Living for Christ not only takes the sting out of death, but also makes death gloriously attractive. And no matter what you and I must still fill in the blank, for me, living is what? And you need to fill that in. Because instead, you're going to live life aimlessly. Verse 22 and 23. If I am to live, Paul said, in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Which, yet which I shall choose. I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. See, for many of you, you have no conflict. You know, I would love to live in this world forever. How do we know that? What, do you know what's the leading um, product in the world today? What most people buy. You know what it is? It's how to live life longer. Right? Check this out. You see a vitamin ad? We'll add life. You buy it. Right? You see it at Costco? Fish oils, salmon oil, whatever oils. You buy it. Because it promises you what? Long life. Right? Oh, 24-hour fitness. LA fitness. What does it promise you? If you come here, you will live longer. Right? Both not true. I could be as buff as lamb. <laughs> i get there someday. Um, but there is an appointed time for me, whether I'm healthy or not. God has an appointed time for my death because he had an appointed time for my life. And God said, I could not bring one more day to it. I cannot add I can't lessen it, but God knows that appointed day. And for Paul, he said this, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And whether I am alive or I am dead, I will glorify God in my body. 
How many of you can say that? How many of us can absolutely boldly say that? That you're actually living in Christ. You're actually living your life for Christ. And that you're looking forward to death. Why? Why do you look out for death? Because Paul said, that is far, far more better. And I'm going to tell you now, heaven is far more better than this earth. Absolutely better. Right? So don't fall in love into this world. Don't fall in love with your houses. It's junk. It will be burned one day. Right? All your toys in your garage, all your little mini dolls, all will burn. Because we are not destined for this world. We're just a passing through. There is somewhere laid up for me, somewhere beyond the blue. It's our true home that God is preparing for you. And God is preparing for me. Amen? Right? So that's why Paul uses the word tell, which is very Pauline. It's the word gernorzo. It means literally to reveal. So he said, what shall I choose? I can't reveal it. If I had to pick, I'm not sure which I choose. That's another way of saying, I can't say it because God hasn't said it to me. He hasn't revealed to me, so I can't really say which, what I would choose. He was torn by this competing desires. I do not know which to choose. And he said, it's with uh, a sigh. In, order, in other words, Paul is saying, I want what God wants, but he hasn't told me what he wants. So I can't tell you what I want. But once God tells me what he wants, I'm going to say that that's what I want. And if he wants me to live, that's what I want. If he wants me to die, that's what I want. That's the Christian life. And Paul was saying, if I do stay, if I do stay, it will be fruitful labor for me. Paul knew that his death would leave dozens of disciples with their mentor, uh, without a mentor, hundreds of spiritual children without their father in the faith, and the universal body of Christ without the foundational apostle. And unbelievers would be without his compelling witness to the resurrection. Believers would not have been robbed of his encouragement, would have been robbed of his encouragement, his teaching, and his inspiration. That's why Paul said, I can't tell. But look at verse V. He tells us what he wants. Okay, my desire is what? I want you to see this. My desire is to depart. That's my desire. Okay, I don't know about you. I'm not there yet. But I want to get there. I'm closer to there. Okay, but would you say that about yourself? My desire is to depart. Is that your desire? It's to depart. He didn't say here, depart somewhere. It says, depart and be with who? Christ. Right? And would you say this with me? For that is far better. Would you say that with me? For that is far better. Do you believe it? Do you believe that is far better? Would you want to wake up one day that there's no more credit card bills coming in? Eh? There's still more bills coming in. There's no more mortgage coming in. And then when you walk into the very room that God has prepared for you, all he says is all paid? Wouldn't that be awesome? Right? I'm looking forward to having no annoying kids. I'm not saying my kids are annoying, just kids in general. (laughs) So so I'm just saying to you (laughs) that it's so far better. 
right? Is this? Um, there was a nurse at the hospital. And he says to me, hey, brother, I just want to tell you that heaven is far better than your morphine. Liar! It's not! <laughs> Give me more time! <laughs> but I want to tell you, I really believe that it's far better. Then he says, but to remain in the flesh is most necessary on your account. And whether you believe me or not, I'll tell you this. I'm indispensable. Uh, Indispensable. I'm so disposable in in many ways. I'm not indispensable. I am weak. I am dumb. I am all of that and then some. and, And if God gives me what I deserve, I'll be in real trouble. But I really truly believe that while I was laying there in bed, that it was not the end. I knew that I still had a race to run. I still knew that in my heart of hearts that I still need to want to do things. I still want to continue what I'm doing. And, and that whatever I have left, I want to give to God. But I also was also content also at some point in that bed that God, if that was it for me, I'm okay to take me. I'm, I'm ready to go as well. Um, I re- actually remember that exact moment. It was that exact moment that um, I was bleeding, and then um, they had to take the staples out so that they had to um, stop the bleeding. And um, and at that point, I said, "God, you know, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay to go. I really am." But if I'm going to stay, God, uh, my prayer is that I'll be fruitful. I just don't want to stay for the sake of staying. I, I really don't. I'm not interested in that. Um, and here's the chart I want to show you to visualize the conflict which Paul was facing. Um, to, for him to depart death benefits, uh, to die as a martyr in imitation of Christ, and to die instantly to be with Christ in glory, freedom from the pain of the world. And, and the liabilities is be absent from those who needed him. No longer be living a witness for Christ. Leave a gap among the apostles. And for him to remain in life, the benefit, he says, to live is to continue to have fruitful labor in ministry. To live is to provide security and hope to the believers. And to train the next generation of preachers and leaders. And the liability is absent from physical presence of Christ. Absent from the heavenly glory. Continuing in the suffering of this world. So this was his conflict. And, and Paul gives us his ultimate preference. I want to be with Christ. So, so why did he prefer dying? Because it meant being with Christ forever. And that was better. He doesn't mention his desire for relief or reward. His only desire is only for him to be with Christ. Can I ask you this? Is that your only desire? Is to be with Christ? Is that your desire? Is to be with Christ? This man, that is what it is. You know what life will be it? When it's all concluded, is to be with Christ. That is life, in a nutshell. It's the only thing important in life. That after this, is to be with Christ. In verse 24 and 25, it says, But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. He tells the Philippians, I want to remain. If, if I do remain, I'm going to be what? Fruitful. Because I know it's necessary on your account. And convinced of it, I know that I will remain and continue with you all uh, for your progress and joy in the faith. And Paul believed that. It was necessary for him to stay alive. 
for the spiritual being, Paul was confident the Lord would allow him to be around for a bit to help them grow in their faith and, and give joy in this life. And he knew that the Philippians still needed him. It was not that he considered himself indispensable, but rather that he has convinced that his ministry to them was not yet complete. He was so convinced that he needs to finish his earthly work. And what we see here is that it's a determined man. Nothing could keep him from what? Standing firm, not shaking, always keep busy working for the Lord. And I really believe that. This is one of the verses that I hang on to. That I need to stand firm and not be shaky and immovable and always keep busy working for the Lord. And, and that's what we have to do as Christians. We have to always keep busy. People often are, are so um, enamored and, and idealistic about resting or, or, or not staying busy, about not stressing about things or not working. And, and, and this verse tells me always keep busy working for the Lord because it's for the Lord. And he knew that everything he did for Christ is worthwhile. That's why we need to keep busy and, and stand firm and not be shaken. Why? Because the time is limited. We could only do what we could do here in this world. And after that, it's over. In Acts 20, 24, his only desire is to finish the race that was set before him. I don't know what your race is. I know what mine is. Okay? And whatever your race is, you got to go finish it. I want to show you this clip from um, this Apostle Paul movie. So, Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. being poured out like a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race.
spirit. finish this race. I pray that you will also as well. If you go back with me real quick um, in verse 22, he says here, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor. And, and, and Paul wanted to continue to live because he wanted to be fruitful. And, and what is fruit? As a young Christian, they kept telling me that I should be more fruitful. I didn't know what that meant because I was a new Christian, right? So I go, do I eat more fruits? <laughs> so I thought that's what really it meant, right? But no, he goes, I go, wow, what does that mean as a Christian to be fruitful? Well, the New Testament speaks of fruit in, in a few different ways. And let me give you four ways to be fruitful. Paul wanted to stay for the Philippians so that he could teach them and help them to live holy lives. In verse 27, only let your manner of life worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. Paul in verse 27 tells the believers in Philippi to live in such a way that you are a blessing to the gospel and not an offense. So let nothing in your conduct, in your life, be an insult to the gospel. Whether I come to you or not, your life must be the same whether I show up to see things for myself or to hear it from afar. But he uses the word, polis, which carries this basic meaning of being a citizen. So by implication, it means be a good citizen of heaven. See, if you're called, if you call yourself a Christian, then live up to that name. That's what Paul is saying. If you're going to call yourself a Christian, live up to that name. And if you're a Christian, you must never live beneath your, your theology, and a Christian must never live beneath your belief. Never. So do me a favor. You want to do me a favor? Just one of the few favors I want to ask of you. If you call Watermark Fellowship your church, okay, and if you're not going to live worthy of that calling to be a Christian, please don't call this your church. Don't call it. Do us a favor. It's hard enough to preach the gospel. It's hard enough to share the gospel with someone. And I don't need your insulting life to be an, a further offense to the gospel. I really, really don't need it. So if you're not going to represent Christ, it's not worthy to call yourself a Christian. It's not worthy to be called be part of this church. But if you are, then live like one. You have to live it. Because this world, whether you like it or not, is against you. And this world wants to take you down. And this world says, I want to see how hypocritical you are. And God's telling you, don't be a hypocrite. Live truthful, worthy of your calling. Live in a matter worthy of it. Paul says here in chapter 2, verse 15, living clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in the world, full of crooked and perverse people, so that no one can criticize you. You know the biggest criticism of Christians? Because you are a bunch of hypocrites, and we are. But with the help of God, help us to live innocent lives. Let us shine. This world is dark. You need to be the shining light. This church needs to be the shining light. We named this watermark so you can leave a mark. And the mark that you live, that you, you live out there, that you live to people, better be of the gospel. 
on them, please don't call this your church. Do me a favor. Do us a favor who wants to walk. Our lives must give proof that, they, that we have been touched by the gospel. That our lives are worthy of the gospel. And he says, hold firmly to the word of life. Then on that day of Christ's return, I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain. That I, my work was not useless. In Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men that they may glorify our Father. Watermark's greatest testimony before our city, our state, and the world is spiritual integrity. But to those who call Watermark Fellowship Church lives below the standards of the Bible, we end up compromising the full biblical truth concerning the character, plan, and will of God. And we seriously weaken the credibility of the gospel and lessen our impact into our world. John the Baptist said, bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. The gospel is the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. It is the truth that Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said, and he was buried, that he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. This is the message that he described in 116 as the power of God of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. Here's the point, that those who belong to Christ through saving faith should demonstrate that power by our change and transform lives. You see, our world can hardly be expected to embrace the gospel message if the church, if this church doesn't practice a standard of holiness and fails to manifest the transforming power of Christ. So why do we even exist as a church? We should never even exist if our goal is not to live holy lives. Next thing he said is unity. He said, I want to help this church to be unified. And he talks about in Philippians 4 too. Hey, these two women who are fighting, get them together. And, and have them to be in the same mind and heart. Because it's hard enough that our world, we belong in a world that is so disunited, right? 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 You have Fox News against CNN. That's all you hear. Right? You get one view, you get the other view. Right? And then how many times have you heard? Our nation is divided. Right? Yes. That our nation will always be divided. But the church cannot be divided by its mission. It cannot be. Because we are united in this fact that the only way people will get saved is through the gospel. And the only way people get saved is through you. By you preaching the word of Christ. And that is the truth. So we need to have unity in this. And how do you have unity? You know, I really believe this, that there wouldn't be any conflict in the church if we just actually think about each other. You know that? Do you know that if you actually take the interests of someone else rather than yourself, and you count them as more important as yourself, there'll be no conflict in the church. The reason why there's conflict in the church is because what? Because you always think that you are what? Right. How many of you guys hear people live with people who think they're always right? How many of you guys know people like that? They know they're always right. They're never wrong. They're always right. Right? And, and here's the thing. Here's the fact. I'm always wrong. I'm always wrong. I'm always wrong. Absolutely wrong. You know, whether I like to admit it or not, I'm always wrong. I mean, my wife is somewhere. She'll tell you. Right? I'm mostly wrong and right. And I accept that. The reason is because that's just who my sinful nature is, right? For example, um, so if I would take your interest and I will say, man, I will take interest in you. And I will look out for you. And I will do what's best for you. Guess what will happen? 
You think there'll be conflict in marriages? You think there'll be conflict in relationships? No, no conflict. It'll be, they'll, have, they'll have oneness. The reason is they'll have oneness is because why? Because we're always looking out for what? What's best for others. Where we make mistakes is when we look out for our own what? Selves. Right? How many of you have ever said this? Uh, this sinful statement. I am right and you are wrong. Maybe you didn't say it, but you said it in your heart. How many of you have ever said that? Right? Right? How about this? You're absolutely wrong, and I'm absolutely right. <laughs> I said that, right? I mean, so when we take all our rights away, when we take all that rights away, and we just say, I'm going to look out for what's best for you, you'll have oneness and no disunity. Another thing is, uh, look at verse 27 to 28, and as we close, um, making disciples is called the fruit. Making disciples is called the fruit. He tells them to not be intimidated in any way by their enemies. They're not to flinch or dodge the conflict. Instead, they are to be courageous and, and unified in the faith. In order to show them what they're up against, defeat for them and virtue for Christ and His church because of the strength God provides. In making disciples, we will have enemies. Don't be afraid of unbelievers, though, Paul says. You see, in disciple-making, you will have enemies. Paul calls them in Philippians 3 as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction, though. Their God is their belly, and they, they glory in their shame with mindset and earthly things. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 tells us, because the cross is offensive, you will have enemies. So no way I'm telling you here that you should go out looking for trouble. But when opponents, when your opponents step in the way of the gospel, we shouldn't be startled. When we get in, in our faces, we shouldn't flinch. When, cricket, when critics taunt us, we have no reason to shy away. Instead, we can stare them down with a joyful calm. And so if you want to see your opponent crumble, respond to their angry attacks with love and with joy. That's how you battle it. Um, I have one more point. This is the hardest one. Paul wanted to teach them not only to live holy lives, not only to be unified, not only to make disciples, but he called them to suffer. Look at verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Paul lastly tells us that in his sovereign grace, God not only gave believers the amazing gift of faith, but also the privilege to suffer for his sake. So suffering is a gift. And many of you say, I don't want that gift. Right? I'm going to pray that prayer. I don't want the gift of suffering. But you don't have to have it. You have it. It's been given to you. No choice. Right? Paul insanely prayed in Philippians 3.10. I, I can't even pray this. He said, I want to know God. And you know how I know God? By having the fellowship of his suffering. Becoming like his in his death. Imagine that. Who would pray that? Would you pray this tonight? Here it is. Just look at me for a moment. Would you pray that God, Lord Jesus... Please send suffering to me tomorrow. <laughs> How many of you will ever pray that prayer? Right? God, help me fellowship with you in suffering. Would you ever say this prayer? None of you would. <laughs> Crazy too. But Paul did. Because he said that's the only way to experience Christ. Let me, let me close this uh, one story. And um, Did you ever have... How many of you have a problem of uh, impatience? Not being patient. I'm guessing you're a problem. In, I'm just not a patient person. 
right? And guys could say, I'm not very patient. So there's this one guy, and he came to his pastor and said, pray for my patience. Okay? So the preacher said, I'd love to. He prayed, Father, give this young man tribulation and suffering. <laughs> and, and by the way, it's, it's a good joke because I prayed for that for most of you. Uh, <laughs> and, and he said this. And then the young guy said, whoa, preacher. I didn't ask for that. I want patience. And the old man quoted scripture to him and said, Tribulation works in patience. And this is how you get patience. I want to tell you, fruitfulness, our fruitful labor, ends when you and I die. And I want you to get this. Fruitfulness will end. And what will you show for it? We will not be fruitful in heaven. We can't. We can't pass out tracts or share the gospel in heaven. We, we can't support God's work in heaven. We can't encourage the young believers in heaven. We're in perfection. And so all of our fruitfulness is on earth. And, and heaven is the place where we get rewarded for our fruitfulness. So our fruitfulness ends the day you die. He considered his suffering, Paul did, for Christ not as a burden, but rather a high honor. And to him, suffering is a part of God's will for his life. And in verse 26, let me end our message this morning. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So Paul tells him, start looking forward to the great reunion when he comes and visits them again. And his vision will assure them that God answered their prayers for his safety. So now when he comes again, they will praise and glorify God together and enjoy each other's fellowship. And that's what Paul live for if, if you are here and you don't have meaning in life and you don't have this outlook on death god's grace available to you this morning in the person of jesus christ who came to us as philippians 2 says humbled himself died the death that we deserve paying the penalty for sinners like us then he rose on our behalf and he's now reigning all over all things and I know for the most part, everything, everyone wants to live, but the reality is everyone will die. It's so easy to get stuck between that, this and that, and forget what's important in life. But there's only one way to have life worth living and death worth dying, and that is to look to the one, Jesus Christ, who conquered death. The one Paul desired to see above all things. So if you see him as he is, you too will say, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain, and to be with Christ is far better. Will you pray with me? God of heaven, um, thank you for giving us a purpose in life. I pray, Lord, that our purpose is to live for you, um, to live a fruitful lives, um, that we're a person who lives holy lives, that we are a unifier. God, that we are men and women, O oh Lord, who loves the gospel, who makes disciples of all nations. God, that we will suffer for the sake of Christ. I pray, Father, that we, if that is not our purpose, that we make it this morning our purpose. God, that to live is Christ and to die is gain and to be with Christ is much, 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 much better. In Jesus' name, amen.